Chapter Twenty Two Developments Part One of Black Moth by Georgette Heyer, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. After the encounter with O'Hara, whatever peace of mind Richard had left him. He knew not a moment's quiet. All day and sometimes all night, his brain worried round and around the everlasting question, John or Lavinia. He had quite declared that it must be either the one or the other. The idea that he might conceivably retain his wife and confess the truth never occurred to him. So often had Lavinia assured him that he had no right to expect her to share his disgrace that he now believed it. He thought that she would elope with Lovelace, whom, his tortured mind decided, she really loved. Any attempt to frustrate such an action would, he supposed wretchedly, be the essence of selfishness. Of course he was not himself, and his brain was not working normally or rationally. Had he but known it, he was mentally ill, and if Lavinia had thought to examine him closely she could not have failed to observe the fever-spots on each cheek, the unnaturally bright eyes, and the dark rings encircling them. Richard bore the look of one goaded beyond endurance, and utterly tired and overwrought. As he told Mrs. Fanshawe, when she exclaimed at his appearance, he could not rest, he must always be moving, thinking. She saw that he was not entirely himself, and counselled him to consult a doctor. His half-angry repudiation of all illness did not surprise her, but she was considerably startled when, in answer to her pleading, that he should have a care for himself, he vehemently said, "'If I could die, I should be glad.' She wondered what his wife was about not to see his condition, and wished that she might do something. But she was not acquainted with Lady Lavinia, and she felt it would be a piece of gross presumption on her part to speak to her of Richard. If she had thought his malady to be physical, she reflected, she might venture a word— but as she perceived it to be mental, she could only hope that it would pass in time, and that he would recover from his run-down condition. Lady Lavinia was pursuing her butterfly existence, heeding nothing but her own pleasure, bent on enjoying herself. She succeeded very well, on the whole, but she could not help wishing that Dicky were a little more cheerful, and wishful to join in her gaiety. Of late he was worse than ever, and though he supplied her wants uncomplainingly, she would almost rather he had refused her and shown a little life, than give way to her with this dreadful apathy. Lovelace was out of town for a week, and Lavinia was surprised to find how little she missed him. To be sure, playing with fire was very pleasant, but when it was removed out of her reach it really made no odds. She missed Harry's adulation and his passionate love-making, for she was one of those women who must always have admiration and excitement, but she was not made miserable by his absence. She continued to flutter round to all the entertainments of the season with one or another of her brothers, and when Lovelace returned he was disturbed by her casual welcome. However, she was undoubtedly pleased to see him, and soon fell more or less under his spell, allowing him to be by her side when Tracy was not near, and to charm her ears with compliments and gallantry. To do him justice, Captain Harold was really in love with her, and was quite ready to relinquish his commission, if only she would run away with him. He had private means of his own, and promised her that her every whim should be satisfied. But Lavinia scolded him, and shook her head. Apart from any ulterior consideration, Richard was, after all, her husband. He, too, loved her, and she was very, very fond of him, although she did plague him dreadfully. Lovelace assured her that her husband did not love her nearly as much as he, and when she smiled her disbelief, lost his temper, and cried, that all the town knew Carstairs to be at Mrs. Fanshawe's feet. Lavinia stiffened. Harold! I am only surprised that you have been blind to it, he continued. Where do you think he goes every day for so long? White's? No, 
"'To sixteen, Mount Street!' Stapley called there and met him. Another day Lady Davenant saw him with her. Wilding has also met him at her house. He spends nearly every afternoon with her. Lavinia was a Belmanois, and she had all the Belmanois pride. Rising to her feet, she drew her cloak about her with her most queenly air. "'You forget yourself, Harold,' she said haughtily. "'Never dare to speak to me of my husband again in that tone. You may take me at once to my brother.' He was very penitent, wording his apology most cleverly, smoothing her ruffled plumage, withdrawing his words, but at the same time contriving to leave their sting behind. She forgave him, yes, but he must never offend her so again. Although she had indignantly refused to believe the scandal, it nevertheless rankled, and she found herself watching her husband with jealous eyes, noticing his seeming indifference towards her and his many absences from home. Then came a day when she caused her chair to be borne down Mount Street at the very moment when Richard was coming out of number 16. That was enough for Lavinia. So he was indeed tired of her. He loved another woman, some wretched widow. For the first time a real worry plagued her. She stayed at home that evening and exerted all her arts to captivate her husband. But Richard, seeing John unhappy, reproachful, every way he turned, his head on fire, his brain seething with conflicting arguments, hardly noticed her, and as soon as he might politely do so, left her, to pace up and down the library floor, trying to make up his mind what to do. Lavinia was stricken with horror. She had sickened him by her megrims, as Tracy had prophesied she would. He no longer cared for her. This was why he continually excused himself from accompanying her when she went out. For once in her life she faced facts, and the prospect alarmed her. If it was not already too late, she must try to win back his love, and to do this she realized she must cease to tease him for money, and also cease to snap at him whenever she felt at all out of sorts. She must charm him back to her. She had no idea how much she cared for him, until now that she thought he did not care for her. It was dreadful. She had always been so sure of Tiki. Whatever she did, how exasperating she might be, he would always adore her. And all the time, Richard, far from making love to Mrs. Fanshawe, was hearing anecdotes of his brother from her, little details of his appearance, things he had said. He drank in all the information, clutching eagerly at each fresh scrap of gossip, greedy to hear it, if it in any way concerned John. His brain was absorbed with this one subject, and he never saw when Lavinia smiled upon him, nor did he seem to hear her coaxing speeches. When she remarked, as she presently did, on his pallor, he almost snapped at her and left the room. Once she put her arms about him and kissed him on the lips, he put her gently aside, too worried to respond to the caress, but, had she known it, grateful for it. His Grace of Andover, meeting his sister at Ranley Gardens, thought her face look pinched and her eyes unhappy. He inquired the reason, but Lady Lavinia refused to confide even in him, and pleaded a headache. Andover, knowing her, imagined that she had been refused some kickshaw, and thought no more about it. He himself was very busy. Only two days before a groom had presented himself at St. James's Square, bearing a missive from Harper, very illegible and ill-spelt, but to the point. "'Your Grace, I have took the liberty of engaging this man, Douglas, in your name. I hope I shall soon be able to have carried out the rest of your Grace's instructions, and trust my conduct will meet with your Grace's approval. Very obediently, M. Harper.' Tracy confirmed the engagement and straightway dispatched the man to Andover, where the head-groom would undoubtedly find work for him to do. He was amused at the blind way in which the man had walked into his trap, 
and meditated cynically on the frailty of human nature, which will always follow the great god Mammon. Not three days later came another letter, this time from Mr. Bowley, addressed to him at White's, under the name of Sir Hugh Grandison. It asked for the man Harper's character. His Grace of Andover answered it in the library of his own home, and smiled sarcastically as he wrote Harper down, exceeding honest and trustworthy, as I have always found. He was in the middle of the letter when the door was unceremoniously pushed open and Andrew lounged into the room. His Grace looked up, frowning. Not a whit dismayed by the coolness of his reception, his brother kicked the door to and lowered his long limbs into a chair. "'May I ask to what I owe the honour of this intrusion?' smiled Tracy, dangerously. "'Richard,' was the cheerful reply. "'Richard.' "'As I am not interested in either him or his affairs. How truly amiable you are to-day! But I think you'll be interested in this. Tis so vastly mysterious.' "'Indeed, what is the matter?' "'Just what I want to know.' Tracy sighed wearily. "'Pray come to the point, Andrew, if point there be. I have no time to waste.' "'Lord! Busy! Working! God a mercy!' The young rake stretched his legs out before him and cast his eyes down their shapeliness. Then he stiffened and sat up, staring at one white-stockinged ankle. "'Now, damn and curse it! Where did that come from?' he expostulated mildly. "'Where did what come from?' "'That great splash of mud on my leg. Brand new on this morning, and I've scarce set my nose without doors.' "'Damn it, I say, a brand-new leg.' "'Hey, what's that you say?' "'Not. When you have quite finished your eulogy, perhaps you would consent to tell me your errand.' "'Oh, aye, but twenty shillings the pair, think of it.' "'Well, the point, there is one, you see, is this. It is Richard's desire that you honour him with your presence at Wincham on Friday week, at three in the afternoon exactly, to which effect he sends you this.' He tossed a letter on to the desk. "'You are like to have the felicity of meeting me there.' Tracy ripped open the packet and spread the single sheet on the desk before him. He read it through very deliberately, turned it over, as if in search of more, re-read it, folded it, and dropped it into the waste-basket at his side. He then picked up his quill and dipped it in the ink again. "'What think you?' demanded Andrew impatiently. His grace wrote tranquilly on to the end of his line. "'What think I of what?' "'Why, the letter, of course. What ails the man? Something of great import to impart to us, forsooth. What means he?' "'Yes, I noticed was very badly worded,' commented Tracy. "'I have not the vaguest notion as to his meeting.' "'But what do you make of it? "'Lord, Tracy, don't be such a fish. "'Dick is summoning quite a party.' "'You appear to be in his confidence, my dear Andrew. "'Allow me to congratulate you. "'No doubt we shall know more, uh, on Friday week, at three o'clock. "'Oh, you'll go, then?' "'Quite possibly.' "'He went on writing unconcernedly. "'And you've no idea what tis about?' "'Dick is very strange. He hardly listens to what one has to say, and I fidget. "'Lord!' "'Ah! I think he looks ill, and pon my soul so does Labby. Do you suppose there is aught amiss?' "'I really have no idea. Pray do not let me detain you.' Andrew hoisted himself out of his chair. "'Oh, I'm not staying, never fear. I suppose you can oblige me with, say, fifty guineas?' "'I should be loth to upset your suppositions,' replied His Grace, sweetly. "'You will not?' "'Well, I didn't think you would, somehow. But I wish you might contrive to let me have it, Tracy. I've had prodigious ill luck of late, and the Lord knows tis not much I get from you. I don't want to ask Dick again.' "'I should not let the performance grow monotonous, certainly,' agreed the other. Fifty, you say? Forty-five would suffice.' "'Oh, you may have it,' shrugged his grace. "'At once?' "'Blister me, but that's devilish good of you, Tracy. At once would be convenient to me.' 
His grace produced a key from his vest-pocket and unlocked a drawer in the desk. From it he took a small box. He counted out fifty guineas and added another to the pile. Andrew stared at it. "'What's that for?' he inquired. "'The stockings,' replied Tracy, with a ghost of a smile. Andrew burst out laughing. "'That's good. God, but you're devilish amusing. Pon rep you are.' He thanked his grace profusely, and, gathering up the money, left the room. Outside he gave vent to a low whistle of astonishment. "'Terran Ounds! He must be monstrously well pleased over something,' he marvelled. "'I shall awaken soon, I doubt not.' He chuckled a little as he descended the staircase, but his face was full of wonderment. End of chapter 22, part 1